This is Eric Sharp, and you are listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. It's not that you're not going to make these bad decisions. You are going to make bad decisions, and you're going to make lots of them. But hopefully, if without taking shortcuts, you're going to get away with most of them too. And I'm just getting this like spooky feeling. I'm like, ah, oh, this is this is exactly where I didn't want to be today. You know, the crack propagated 200 meters to my right, like a meter and a half down, ran size three to the valley bottom. You're tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host for this week, Dom Baker from Nelson, BC. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by Vison Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. With additional sustaining support from Gordini, we keep you outside longer. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination for avalanches. And now for a quick word from our sponsors. Gordini has been redefining the cold weather experience through outdoor gear and glove innovation for more than 66 years. Based in Vermont, family-run, and independently owned, Gordini has focused on the same mission since its founding in 1956, to keep you outside longer. From introducing the first-ever down and leather ski mitts to launching the industry's first dual-layer ski sock, Gordini believes that the future is in our hands and now our feet. See what drives their products and their passions at Gordini.com. Support for this episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast comes from Beacon Guidebooks. Beacon has a library of 16 ski atlas guidebooks and 18 backcountry ski topo maps across five states, and they're growing. Beacon recently released the second edition of their popular field guide for avalanche search and rescue. What if the worst case scenario happens to you? The reality is, is that most of us cannot remember everything from all the classes and clinics we've attended. So this book is meant to help you be a valuable member of the team, whether you're a pro on a large-scale rescue or a regular old skier in a group of three. The author, Alexis Alloway, has done the heavy lifting to provide an easy-to-read and highly curated quick reference tool that includes leadership and risk management reviews, search strategies, probing and shoveling methods, medical protocols, patient packaging and rigging diagrams, quick reference cards, and much, much more. This season, you can go to beaconguidebooks.com to take advantage of 25% off of orders of six or more copies for your patrol, rescue team, or guiding team. Enter the code AVSAR, that's A-V-S-A-R, to take advantage of their team discount for a book that is built to last. You can also reach out to them personally at orders at beaconguidebooks.com. If you want to hear a little bit more about this book, you can go back and listen to our episode with Alexis on episode 6.2. Welcome back, everyone, for another season of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I, for one, have been enjoying Caleb's interviews so far. We've had some really insightful perspectives on decision-making and the interaction of humans and mountains from Ken Wiley and Dr. Sarah Boylan, as well as some incredible tales of 70 seasons spent in the snow from the legend Peter Billis. If you haven't already listened to those yet, do yourself a favor and dig in. 
It's late October as I record this, and there's snow on the ground to the valley bottom in southern BC. It's classic late fall with golden larches dusted with snow and sun shining on the freshly snow-capped mountains. Snow and avalanche workshops are in full swing this time of the year, and the Canadian Avalanche Association are running their annual fall CPD sessions as we speak. This is in conjunction with the ACMG and the CSGA. It's a great time of year to check on your gear. Put the batteries back in your transceiver, check your probe, shovel, your touring gear or your sled, and make sure everything's dialed in for another winter of adventure. What are you doing to prepare for the winter backcountry season? Drop us a comment on Facebook or Instagram to join the conversation. Today we have a two-part episode from the Canadian side of the border. I'm joined by my good buddy Caleb Merrill, and we speak with Eric Sharp, president of the Canadian Avalanche Association. Eric is the real deal avalanche worker, having solid experience in almost every facet of the Canadian avalanche industry. From ski patrol, to research, to public avalanche forecasting, ski guiding, engineering and hazard mapping. In part one, Eric walks us through the many different facets of the CAA. An organization which is equal parts training and certification school for Canadian avalanche workers, as well as the professional organization of which we're all members. The CAA is also a software provider having developed the InfoX, or information exchange, that Canadian avalanche professionals use daily. Eric touches on everything from the history of the organization to membership categories and more. In part two, Eric will walk us through his own personal career and experience, dropping wisdom, stories, and self-deprecating humor in equal measures. Without further ado, here is Canadian Avalanche Association President, Eric Sharp. Really happy to be joined here today by two uh, legends in my mind here. So we got uh, no stranger to the podcast here, Caleb Merrill. Caleb, thanks for joining. Yeah, you bet. And then uh, joined here by Eric Sharp today. Eric Sharp is the president of the Canadian Avalanche Association. Uh, he's been a longtime avalanche professional. Uh, he's a scientist. He's a ski guide. Um, and he manages uh, the Yukon-based office uh, for Alpine Solutions Avalanche Services. Um, as well as working as a ski guide, amongst many other things. So, Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks, Tom. Stoked to be here. Right on. Well, the uh, impetus behind having the conversation today was to talk um, about the CAA and some changes to the uh, membership categories for for membership within the Canadian Avalanche Association. Uh, but there's many other topics to cover as well. So, uh, looking forward to diving into diving into it with you guys. Um, but maybe let's start off with uh, what is the CAA and uh, and how do you see the Canadian Avalanche Association as being slightly different from, say, the structure in the U.S.? Yeah, so the, the CAA is uh, our professional avalanche membership organization in Canada. And its, it's primary focus is around uh, governing, uh, regulating and, and setting best practices for, for avalanche professional practice. Um, it's similar to the AAA, maybe has a slightly bigger scope and mandate. Um, uh, it's quite a bit bigger in terms of its size. Um, and then also uh, in its product offering, I guess. Uh, so it's been around since 1981 when it was founded by uh, Peter Shearer, who is uh, an OG in the Canadian avalanche or avalanche industry. You know, he was the, uh, the longtime forecaster in Rogers Pass and and a researcher, a scientist. Um, uh, and so he set it up in uh, 1981, 
and and since there and has has developed substantially but but now it's kind of comprised of these three core core um areas which is uh itp which is the in- industry training program that's all of our professional level training and uh courses uh membership which is our uh, kind of self-regulating, self-governing professional membership association, and then InfoX, uh, which is our, our latest edition. It's been around for, for 20 years now, um, but it's uh, a software platform um, and that allows an open but confidential uh, and meaningful exchange of avalanche-related information uh, between avalanche professionals in Canada. Yeah, it's quite a lot to dive into there. Um, maybe just starting with sort of where the CAA started. Uh, can you talk to us about a, a little bit about that history of self-regulation? Yeah, totally. So um, it's, uh, it, you know, it, the history of the organization goes back to, to 81. I was born in 82. So I don't, I don't really know the early days. We're, we're involved in a history project right now where we're trying to capture um, some of those you know some of the accounts and the and the uh, the legacies of the original founders and, and bring them in so we kind of know where we came from. But but where I can start to speak to is is probably the early nineties. Um, and so this was one of the first challenges where uh, avalanche professionals in Canada f- started thinking that we needed to define who we are and what and what we can do. And uh, I actually just found about this on the drive back from from ISSW. I was driving back to Canada with Bruce Jameson long time uh, researcher around the, you know, the UFC Avalanche Research Group for about decades. Uh, but back in 82, as a, a relatively young professional, probably similar point in his career as I am in mine, was was president of the CAA and uh, had a really interesting challenge then when uh, APEG, which is the uh, society, society Association of Geoscientists and Engineers in BC, uh, decided that only engineers or geoscientists would be able to discuss avalanche hazard. Uh, and so, you know, back in the 90s, all of a sudden there was this, this kind of crisis where <laughs> all of avalanche professionals were having kind of well, some of our key language and tools and, and responsibilities potentially taken away from us. And so there was, uh, yeah, it was a bit of a, a you know, a crisis of, of, of who we are, what we do. And, and didn't get into this into the nuts and bolts too much with Bruce, but it, it was obviously resolved. But it was kind of the first time these sort of issues bubbled up of, of outside regulators um, maybe not fully understanding our domain of expertise in the avalanche patch, trying to assign a scope of practice or, or, or regulation or governance to us. And that, that same kind of uh, vibes, you know, bubbled back again in, in the early, uh, or I guess the mid-2010s, when in British Columbia, uh, the WorkSafe BC started to look at trying to define what was what should be define the upper level of practice. So really, kind of the engineering level of practice, how how that interface between engineers and avalanche professionals uh, should look at kind of at the planning level of risk management. So not your operational day to day forecasting, control, guiding decisions, but but in developing safety plans and hazard zoning. And so that that brought this conversation of, uh, of of what is it to be an avalanche professional in Canada up again, and, and uh, through some fits and starts, it resulted in a in a designation called the Qualified Avalanche Planner that stuck around for a couple of years and then kind of fizzled out. It didn't didn't really didn't really work. Um, but the the board led by I think at the time it was Aaron Beardmore who was the president. 
Um, that I may have the timing a bit wrong there, but they started to recognize that we probably needed to get ahead of these issues, and 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 so started looking at different structures, you know, organizational structures to to support, regulate, and govern professional avalanche practice in, in Canada. And what they what they came up with was a changing the CAA to being a self-governing professional organization built around a competency-based um, membership model. So what that means is the CAA gets to set the terms, the the structure, the regulations, the guidance, the governance for avalanche practice, and then also through membership establishes uh, a set of competencies that allow avalanche professional, professionals uh, to gain membership to the organization and then work within a defined scope of practice. And, and so that's where we were, we're, we're at, you know, it, that, that process took a long time. It was a lot of uh, policy and procedure and uh, policy and procedure is maybe not where most of us are comfortable. Uh, and so, you know, we have a strong, strong ED, Joe Obad at, at CAA, uh, who, who really was instrumental in helping us through that. But it took a while to kind of get the policies and procedures to support this self-governing professional body, com- competency-based membership uh, in, in place. And uh, we, uh, yeah, we approved it in 2018. Uh, and then as with any, you know, policy, uh, I'm finding out once you roll out a new policy, best laid plans fall apart when they meet the enemy. And so uh, policies need to be reviewed and, and procedures around them need to be reviewed. And so now we're in this place of kind of figuring out how that initial idea worked and trying to adapt it and update it to to best meet our, our members' needs, but also our stakeholders' needs and, you know, the avalanche industry in Canada as a whole. So, Eric, maybe you could lay out the different membership categories for us and, and kind of like break that down and how, how those have evolved in the last few years. Yeah, so we, we, um, in 2018, we, we approved this new membership model where at the kind of the practicing level of avalanche professional, or let's call it at the practicing level of avalanche workers, there's, there's two membership categories or two, two competency groups, and those would be avalanche practitioners and avalanche professionals. And the initial idea was that we didn't want to imply any kind of um, you know finite career path like avalanche practitioners have a, a smaller scope of practice than an avalanche professionals uh, but it's not necessarily an apprentice level position like you could be an avalanche practitioner and work in the avalanche patch for your whole career the avalanche professional just it's it, it kind of touches on maybe you know skills that are involved in running programs in in more um, the transition out of the operational risk management domain into you know planning and engineering um, so yeah two different levels uh, with different scopes of practices but no necessary path defined from one to the other one thing so those were just as I guess as of a legacy of where where we had come from those were both designed to be be generalists and so, you know, it, the, uh, the application process um, to demonstrate the co- or to gain and demonstrate the competencies is, is, is pretty involved. You know, it's, it, we'll talk about the ITP program later, our industry training program. But, you know, you can't just take a bunch of avalanche courses and, and get the necessary skills to be a, a, a practicing avalanche worker. There's, there's an on-the-job training component, a mentorship component. As you guys know, that can take years. 
um, to really hone your craft. And so what we found is that, you know, by adopting this approach where we wanted avalanche workers to be generalists, there's a large curriculum that needs to be covered. And then that needs to be augmented by, by uh, on-the-job mentorship and, tri- and, and you know, professional development. And so then the end result of that is a, is a fairly rigorous membership application and screening process that touches a lot of different aspects of the industry. One of the one of the initial challenges we had in rolling this out was that you know, again there was a lot of paperwork and and uh, a lot of folks who work uh, doing this sort of work have chosen it because they don't like paperwork, uh, and so there was a bit of you know there's been a bit of friction in trying to in trying to figure out a streamlined process for folks to demonstrate that they have the competency to be members in a in a accessible way. Uh, the other thing we recognized, though, is that uh, we were potentially underserving areas of the industry by by having this generalized approach. And so, you know, during during COVID, well, I guess it's been going on for longer than there, but but backcountry recreation's been booming, right across across the across North America for sure. And as a result, the demands for avalanche education for recreationalists has been has been booming. And 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 in Canada and a lot of places, supply of instructors is is not meeting the demand for courses. And so we recognized that this idea of trying to have a membership model where we wanted to you know, uh, empower avalanche generalists wasn't necessarily serving that specific market segment. And so we started looking at ways we could potentially like increase the accessibility of avalanche, edu- avalanche instructors for recreationalists. And so what we came up with was uh, dipping our, our toes into the water of kind of avalanche specialists. And, and we came up with these new um, two new membership categories uh, in the last year that were approved by the, the membership at our AGM in the spring uh, for avalanche educator membership. So these are, these are going to be members who are uh, qualified and accredited to teach avalanche courses to recreationalists. They're, that's going to be the, the limit of their scope of practice. So they're not generalists, they're specialists. And, and the idea also was to streamline the application process where we would be able to develop a training curriculum where all of the competencies required to be able to teach avalanche courses for recreationists could be delivered through our industry training program courses. And so rather than having to demonstrate competencies through this kind of resume and, and documented experience, folks would be able to take a couple of courses and then become an avalanche educator member of the CAA which would then allow them to teach in Canada. The way it works is uh, the CAA, you know, governs the avalanche workers. Uh, avalanche Canada, which is our kind of public safety body, uh, we've got one for the whole country. They develop and license what they call the avalanche safety training curriculum, which is our uh, recreational avalanche courses. And so they manage the risk and the quality of education by, by right now or currently only allowing CAA members to teach their courses. And so now they'll have a, a kind of a streamlined process of, of getting more avalanche course instructors. And so hopefully we can, we can start providing more training without reducing the quality of the education. That was the goal, was to kind of re- increase the accessibility of public avalanche education without reducing the quality. So a question for you that arises from that, Eric, those will be uh, avalanche course instruction specific courses that you'll be offering for these new membership categories? Yeah, exactly. So um, they're, they're, they are uh, an addition to our existing industry training program. 
that specifically tries to develop competencies required for for avalanche education. So there's, you know, there's, we def, we're, we're staying very clear of the guiding domain, but there are, you know, there, there are instructional competencies that obviously you want avalanche educators to have, like they need to be able to talk the language and, and explain these concepts. And so there's some instructional um, components to these courses. And then uh, the way we avoid uh, a confusion between guiding work and avalanche education work is we set guidelines for instruction in avalanche terrain, and then we provide some education on how to work within those guidelines. So it's going to be able to, uh, you know, on a large scale, like choose appropriate terrain for an avalanche education objective versus a quality skiing objective. I should say a safe avalanche education objective versus a, a safe ski objective um, or a safe snowmobile objective, right? So it, it's not it's not guiding, but there is a train kind of a terrain component to the, uh, the new courses we're offering. And so, yeah, the first one, uh, we've been working hard. Like we just got this, these membership categories approved by the greater membership at REGM in the spring, like I said, and then the staff at the CAA, uh, we cracked the whip a bit and they've been working hard all summer to get a beta version of these courses ready for this winter. We're focusing on the, on, on, well, we're gonna be able to run what we call the basic of courses for the basic avalanche educator. So I guess I should I should explain that a little bit more. Uh, we decided there's in Canada there's two levels of avalanche safety training. There's the AST one, which is your intro course, and then there's the AST two, which is your kind of more advanced uh, recreationalist course. And so we've broken them up into two associated membership categories: so basic avalanche educators and advanced ab- avalanche educators. And uh, we're focusing on the basic membership category right now because that's where the greatest demand is. And so, yeah, we'll be running, running the courses to accredit, hopefully, some new basic avalanche educators, um, yeah, this winter. Right on. So that'll happen uh, early on in the winter, so then they, these people can go on and teach uh, AST courses, do you think? Or what's your uh, thoughts on the time frame? The earlier, the better, but also getting it right the first time. So uh, we're, we still haven't quite finalized everything, uh, but they will be, yeah, they're, they're going to be offered hopefully in the first half of the winter for sure. So for some context, the existing membership categories weren't quite meeting the needs or are they just not the volume of instructors? Like there just weren't enough instructors with the existing membership categories? Yeah, there just there just weren't enough instructors. And and uh, and the reason for that was, is we, you know, the, the, the competencies you needed to develop to be recognized as a, an avalanche professional or an avalanche practitioner are so broad, right? They, they talk about, you know, you're looking at, explosive control or at least avalanche control in some form being part of an avalanche program working through hazard hazard workflows like they're they're quite a broad scope with the idea that we wanted our avalanche professionals in canada to be able to you know with additional training work as guides with additional training potentially be involved in the engineering side of risk management be avalanche you know industrial avalanche forkers or forecast for for transportation we thought that skill set needed to be uniform across all of those people and so again, to develop that competency takes quite a while. That put a backlog on 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 people getting membership. Right? We we made it harder for people to become members through this process. It's, it's more onerous for sure. And so as a result, uh, when the when the the when the need for avalanche education boomed, we didn't have enough members who could focus on providing these courses available. I guess concurrently, 
a lot of the other portions of our industry are booming as well, whether it be uh, resource extraction and avalanche train and and guided skiing uh, and and even ski hills for that matter. So I suppose every facet of the the industry needs these staff, and so I guess maybe people just don't have the the time in their schedules to teach avalanche courses in addition to everything else they might be doing. Yeah, I think I think so. You know, we're definitely seeing. Um, even, you know, not it's, this isn't the membership piece. This is the front loaded piece, which is just the industry training program we run, you know, are the demand for those courses is currently exceeding our ability to teach. Like there's more people who want to get involved in this industry than we can train. So yeah, the other, the other challenge was, is that, you know, there traditionally um, a lot of guides in Canada have not been members of the CAA and that was fine because they wanted to just go and ski guide and it wasn't a requirement for their job. But with COVID, when all of these guiding operations were shutting down, all of a sudden they were looking for you know alternate incomes and saw teaching avalanche courses as being a pretty reasonable way to, to supplement their incomes through some challenging times for the tourism sector. And then we're running into this hurdle where they had to go through this quite onerous application process for membership in the CA and, and demonstrate competencies that they thought were quite self-evident. You know, they're guides, they can obviously manage avalanche terrain. And so it's another part of this. We've we've been working really hard with uh, the ACMG, the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides, to to kind of streamline the the transition of of certification from the ACMG to CAA membership. So we've definitely made it easier for you know for an ACMG ski guide to become an avalanche educator or a, a, a professional member without having to document as much as may, maybe someone who's doesn't have that external training and, and accreditation. So that's our other pieces. We're trying to we're trying to you know facilitate the process for guides to to be able to come in and and teach the ITP courses that Avalanche Canada licenses. And will that apply to the CSGA as well as the ACMG? Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That that that's been developed in conjunction with the CSGA and and the ACMG. Uh, our our membership committee has been working really hard. Those guys are are the unsung heroes of the association. They've spent the last decade deep in in these really detailed spreadsheets of like you know what do we want an avalanche professional to be they need to be able to you know do everything from from throw a shot to make a detailed radio call to produce a hazard forecast and for each one of these competencies and there's 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 a couple hundred different competencies they've got you know where are they going to get that that experience from how are they going to demonstrate it and so they've they've recently gone back through all of that that minutia and then line that up with the, the CSGA and the ACMG training programs and kind of drawn, drawn links like here's where they you know that's automatically assigned or associated with with this certification and so really reduce the burden of, of proof on on professional guides um, to demonstrate that they have the chops to be CA members which they obviously do right if you're a ski guide or whether it's a CSJ guide or a mountain guide or a yeah, you're, work, you're working in the field, you can do the work. So it's, it's just streamlining that process. Eric, at the spring meetings at the AGM, I was definitely impressed in the way that you uh, were able to explain the rationale uh, and the impetus behind these new categories. And you also spoke a bit about some of the ramifications for not creating the new membership categories, uh, which I, th- I found to be quite interesting um, and, and pretty well articulated. So I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing that with us here in this platform. Oh yeah, that was, uh, that was traumatic. That was my first AGM as, as uh, president. 
and I'm probably on the young side for being a president of the association. So I, I was feeling the pressure. And normally these meetings go on for like an hour and they're pretty, pretty business. And then all of a sudden I found myself, there was, there was, people were engaged. It was awesome. But the tone of the conversation, like people had a lot of concerns about this new, this new approach to how we accredit avalanche professionals in the country. And I'll be honest, because I, I get through most things in life with like winging it and thinking on my feet and a smile. And there was about halfway through that meeting where I was like, this is going to be a really public failure. Like this is, I'm going to fail hugely in front of all my peers. But it was great that we managed to bring it around. And, and in the end, you know, the vote passed with a pretty resounding success, but it was, it was good discussion. But I think one of the things that, that brought people to it is, is that, you know, one of the, one of the beauties of the Canadian avalanche industry is that we're, we're pretty centralized. I think there's geographic reasons for that compared to the States, right? Like most avalanche programs in Canada are happening in BC. You know, there's a bit of avalanche work in Alberta. There's a bit of avalanche work in the Yukon where I live. There's some out, out East in Newfoundland, Labrador and, and Quebec, but, but the hub of the avalanche industries is, is BC. And so, so things are centralized. And as a result, we've got, you know, we've got one public avalanche forecasting body, that's Avalanche Canada. And we work really closely with them. And, and, and the CAA as an organization kind of controls um, and regulates in a very unified way, like how avalanche practice is done in Canada. And I really saw the potential. There's a pretty big reputational risk. Well, an organizational risk to the organization, to the CAA, if we, if we couldn't find a way to train and, and supply um, aval- you know, avalanche professionals for avalanche, recreational avalanche education. Because if we couldn't fill that market need, someone else would. And, and that I saw leading to the potential fragmentation of our industry where you had kind of, you know, different groups playing the same sphere. And we're as a whole, I would say we're a pretty strong headed bunch. We know we have enough disagreement when we all feel that we're, we're all playing on the same team. Um, you know, the more fragmented we get, I, I don't think that's a strength. Like we have contrary opinions within our organization, having, separate organize the potential for separate organizations with separate mandates i just saw that as as potentially really breaking something that's pretty wonderful about avalanche work in canada and so uh yeah i was really stoked when we managed to to pull it together and, and you know got the membership in the room on board with with such a resounding success at the end of that but i was sweating yeah you were getting grilled there for sure i was <laughs> i was impressed with your uh your ability to stay calm and uh, the ca really did do the due diligence of like outreach and communication. And, you know, there was uh, online uh, events to talk about this uh, change to the membership categories in advance. And there was, you know, notes from those seminars were emailed out to the membership after for those that weren't able to make it as well as the, the AGM as well. So there's, there's plenty of opportunity for people to find out all of the reasoning. It wasn't uh, kept hush hush by any means. It was very transparent, which is great. Yeah. I think, I think what I took really took away from it is, is, we were, we're we're thinking as our as our governance board of the CA like we see the reason that had it had to happen and we were we were all on board and we were pulling really hard and we were trying to communicate with the membership what we were doing while we're doing it you know you can always communicate more and and one of the, some of the feedback we got was yeah members want to want to know a bit more behind the scenes and so we're trying to we're trying to do that what i really took away from from those meetings was we weren't just proposing two members, new membership groups. We were, we were really also fundamentally proposing a new way that avalanche professionals are considered in Canada. We were moving away from this model of being generalists where you want avalanche professionals to be able to parachute into any area of the industry and be able to, to practice as a high, at a high level. 
And uh, we hadn't really considered like the, the, what that cultural change meant to the folks who identify as avalanche workers, right? It was, we were kind of, you know, changing the landscape on folks and, and maybe pulling the rug out from their feet a little bit uh, unintentionally. Um, and I think that's where some of the, the, res, the, like the, the questions came from and the concerns um, was they wanted to know how, how is this new landscape going to look and how is it going to affect them, which is, yeah, this is, this is our, this is our career. It's our profession. So those were totally valid concerns and I appreciated them. Yeah. Maybe I'll, uh, I'll jump in here and kind of give a glimpse into the American Avalanche Association or the A3. And I should preface this by saying I'm not a representative of the A3. I'm a professional member. Um, but you know, I think there are some really nice similarities to the CAA and the A3. Uh, there are also some some differences for sure. But, you know, the A3 is a nonprofit that was founded in 1986 and kind of has its focus on three main objectives, outreach, education, and publications. So on the outreach side of things, you know, they manage avalanche.org. And avalanche.org is kind of like as similar a website as you would get to avalanche.ca, right? Like you pull that up and you get the map of the United States and you can see real-time forecasts there. There's also educational resources and a, a great encyclopedia, just a ton of information on that website. And, and that really started in 1996 as the Westwide Avalanche Network. And then in 2009, the A3 took that on to maintain. And then subsequently in 2017, our United States Forest Service National Avalanche Center partnered with the A3 to broaden the reach of avalanche.org. So really now that stands as the the public safety platform in the U.S. and and getting more centralized every day, it seems. So the A3 also works to support our regional snow and avalanche workshops. They put on webinar series. They have a resilience project that has grants for teams and individuals in need of some, you know, uh, stress-related injury help, and then also research and, and education grants and scholarships. On the publication side of things, the, the A3, you know, puts out four publications a year of the Avalanche Review and have a digital version of that. Um, and then Snowy Torrance is a book that comes out chronicling avalanche accidents in North America. Um, and then they oversee the snow weather and avalanche guidelines, um, which would be kind of the equivalent of the ogres in Canada. And they're working on an app for, for snow weather and avalanche guidelines, which should be coming out this season. Um, but I kind of wanted to focus a little bit more on the education side of things. Because we're seeing the same thing in the U.S. that you're describing, Eric, as there's this huge uptick in, in enrollment in avalanche education and maybe not the instructors to fulfill those roles. So, um, you know, we went through a big change starting in the fall of 2013 where a group of avalanche educators and stakeholders within the industry came together and looked at what we were missing within both our recreational and our professional avalanche education in the States. And then after much work uh, in 2017, we split the pro and the rec programs. 
Um, I'm sure many people are pretty um, skookum to this, but you know that was a huge step in consistency, I think, and evaluation of our pro training program, much like your your industry training program in some ways. And so at this time, there's there's six providers within the U.S. So kind of sticking to our theme of a bit more decentralized in the United States. Um, there's six providers that offer professional avalanche education. Um, and there's a pretty rigorous application and review process for that, for those providers. And then ongoing review to maintain that status after those, those providers start teaching avalanche education on the rec side of things, things are a little bit more murky in the United States, I'd say. Um, you know, there's almost 80 recreational avalanche providers, avalanche education providers in the States. And, you know, it, in order to teach a recreational avalanche course, those providers just need to, to meet the guidelines that the A3 has set forward. And so that opens up the opportunity for guide services or organizations to kind of put their own curriculum together as long as they're meeting certain benchmark standards that the A3 has put forth. In order to be listed as a recreational avalanche provider in the U.S., there, you, you have to go through a self-eval of the curriculum and uh, provide the A3 with a course syllabus. So that's, that's why we can have so many more avalanche education providers for the recreational side of things. Um, it's just a little bit less rigorous, but there comes into question kind of questions of consistency amongst those programs. And I think one of the ways that the A3 is addressing that, they just brought on, they created a new position, the, the recreation education manager. Um, so Jason Simmons-Jones stepped into that position and it'll be interesting to see where that goes here in the future in terms of, of evaluation and some consistency across the board. But I think one of the ways that the A3 kind of has these membership categories that align with our educational standards is kind of important. We have general membership, which is great. You know, it's like no prerequisites. Anybody that can spell avalanche can be a general member of the A3. <laughs> and and with that comes, you know, four, four issues of the avalanche review and, and emails in your inbox and, and, um, job postings and things like that. And then an affiliate member, which is, you know, somebody that's working towards their professional membership. And so you need to have two years of avalanche experience, work experience to be an affiliate member. And then a professional member has at least four seasons, um, plus some qualified educational background. So, you know, in my eyes, it's a little bit less rigorous than the some of the categories that the CAA has, but hopefully that kind of explains some of the, some of the differences that I see at least. Yeah. I think, you know, the end goal is the same as that you get avalanche professionals or, or affiliates who are competent and qualified to do their job. I think the, uh, maybe the challenge, the additional challenge that we have is that, you know, the potential outside bodies of oversight, whether it be the association of engineers or work state, in Canada, they're very so. There's very 
they're very centralized. There's like it's everything's in BC, and so there's an engineering body of BC, a worksafe body of BC, um, who are all we're all kind of looking at what we're doing, and so we've got to we have to respond very directly to to those to those outside pressures, uh, which is which is what resulted in this much more defined and rigorous approach to membership. I think at the professional level. But yeah, I love what the AAA is doing. Janie and, and Lynn, for sure. You know, that's been chatting quite a bit with them lately and got my professional membership application in. So fingers crossed, I'll be a AAA member soon. Um, yeah, I think just different, different kind of, there's different cultural and legislative frameworks in the two different countries, right, that have, have resulted in slightly different approaches to the same end goal. Yeah, no doubt. Let's talk a little bit more about kind of like this cross-pollination, you know, like it's a growing trend for avalanche professionals in the States to to want to come up and do some industry training programs with with Canadians. You know, it's a, it's a great program and, and it's nice to kind of glimpse into to the different culture and different ideas. And so what advice do you have for um, folks from outside Canada that want to come and and take part in your ITP. Yeah, well, it's 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 pretty rewarding actually. I know I know the ITP team. You know, there's five of them who work full time on that program. Five uh, CA staff who work full time on that program and and uh, put a ton of effort in. And then there's over seventy instructors. I think we have at last count, most of whom have other you know their 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 guides ninety percent of the time or or forecasters or retired but no one's working full-time as an instructor for us i don't think yeah they put a ton of effort into that program and and it's really it's really cool to see how it's getting increasingly recognized internationally like i think in the last couple of years we've run run courses in japan sweden australia was the last one we ran out uh, overseas and so yeah one, one is that we're we're bringing the courses to folks who are interested in in Kind of learning about you know the avalanche phenomenon in, in the Canadian way, which which is very process based. We try to re- build robust processes and tools, and then you know guide decision making, complex decision making through these kind of heuristic based processes. So yeah, I think it's a great program to either you know to augment your other your other training or or um, come to it for the source of the training. Terms of in terms of what to be you know what, how to prep, I think the first thing to recognize is that there's the way we we've broken it up is it, there ends up being a lot of courses. The way it works right now is you take an online course that you start with, which is a kind of internet introduction to avalanche practice course, outlaying industry. Then there's a, a stream of training that focuses purely on rescue skills, everything from you know here's how you do a a little bit more than a companion rescue, but here's how you participate in an organized avalanche rescue all the way up to avalanche incident risk management and how you, you know, you, you work within an incident command system to coordinate multiple agency avalanche rescue. So that's one stream. Um, we've got the core kind of operation stream, which is, you know, level one trains you to be an avalanche, a part of an avalanche program. So you're, you know, really it's, we'd call it the observer course. It's teaching you to go out, dig good profiles, gather good data, bring it back to your forecast team who can process it. The level two program, um, yeah, introduces some of these forecast processes and tools and, and, and how to take 
avalanche snowpack weather and avalanche observations and aggregate them into a hazard assessment, look at the weather, forecast them out into, into changing avalanche conditions. The level three is, uh, is more of your program design. So it's, it's implementing these pretty formal risk management processes of like, how do you, you know, how do you design an avalanche program to be able to manage specific operational avalanche risks, whether that be in a guiding context or a ski hill or a, a road or a, a construction site. And then there's a whole stream introducing mountain weather specific to the avalanche patch. You know, how do we, how do you forecast weather so you can forecast avalanche hazard or, or even just make good operational decisions. So looking at weather forecasting from the kind of the one day window all the way out to you know, looking multiple days, three, four days. We offer mapping training, which is more targeted at the engineering side of practice. How do you create hazard maps? And then, so there's a pretty broad spectrum of, of curriculum, um, pretty diverse skill set. Uh, we, can, we can help people develop. There's a, there's a critical path you have to take through that. Um, you know, certain courses need to happen before other courses. You don't need to take them all. Uh, but all of that information is is on our website, which is uh, avalancheassociation.ca. That kind of helps you navigate that process. But I would say most avalanche, you know, most people who are avalanche professionals probably probably are still taking courses, you know, because there's so much to offer. You can kind of continue your CPD throughout your career, which is pretty awesome. And then we obviously augment that with with kind of focused CPD sessions every year. We run a bunch of CPD stuff where people can learn everything from yeah, um, you know, new strategies for dealing, dealing with mental health to new rescue techniques. Like it's a pretty diverse program. But I, th- I would say most people who are avalanche professionals have taken, you know, probably four or five years at least to get through the the, the critical path of training where they can be functioning as a, you know, a, a lead on an avalanche program, assessing assessing your avalanche hazard and designing the, you know, the daily operational mitigations for it. Yeah, it's a pretty robust program that we've gotten a pretty good path. And it seems like there's always a critical eye from the CAA about how um, to improve the path as well. Like there seems to be quite an evolution and we'll hear from uh, CAA member of staff soon here about um, some of the changes coming up. But I was wondering if you'd be interested to comment on, um, you know, the specialization in some of these courses. You know, we have like a a two-part AFSAR course now. Um, We have you know, a three-part avalanche course. Um, I was wondering if you talk a little bit about kind of how that uh, fine tooth comb that we've got going on here uh, approach has sort of developed. Yeah, totally. So the way the way the CA works is is we're we're member run. So all the governance for the association comes from avalanche workers, avalanche professionals. We have our board that kind of sets high-level governance, tasking, and direction. But then we're supported by a bunch of really active committees where uh, that are ta- that are focused on specific areas. So we have a membership committee that's designing these membership competencies. We've got a technical committee that's that's reviewing uh, our ogres, our version of, of um, swag, and suggesting changes. We have an education committee uh, that's current, current, constantly, you know, reviewing our curriculum. Uh, trying to work and engage with our, our stakeholders and sister organizations, whether it be you know the CSGA, Canadian Ski Guides Association, or the ACMG, and ensure that our training nets neatly with what other organizations in the, the domain are providing. 
but also, you know, most of these people are, are senior folks within the industry. They know they know what they need their staff to be able to do when they come onto a onto a project or a job or a ski hill or a guiding team. And so, yeah, it sometimes feel like feels like the uh, the ITP, the industry training program curriculum, is ever growing and and ever specializing. That's not us just making up new challenges for people. It, it's really coming from it's a top down. It's it's or not top down outside in it's uh industry saying hey you know what like we need we need this we need people to be you know to have stronger rescue skills we need people to be able to work within an ics scenario because who knows i might be guiding one day and you know one of the formative days of my career is i was ski patrolling at kicking horse uh in golden bc and this was back in i'm gonna get a year wrong i think 2008 but it was when the the big iron shootout was happening in revelstoke a big snowmobile competition that resulted in a massive avalanche. And, uh, you know, you went, we went from ski patrolling and uh, ski cutting <laughs> some of the steeps at the horse to jumping in a helicopter and flying two hours and landing on a site where there's like guides, you know, potentially at one point we heard 250 people were buried. There's 12 helicopters in the air. You know, there is, there's chaos. And so that was a, that was an event where we we're like, Hey, we need to bring ICS training into our curriculum because who knows where our workers are going to end up. And we want to ensure that they have the skills to be able to like function, but ideally excel in all of the diverse areas that this industry provides, you know, just being able to turn a beacon on and, and uh, run a, run a search down a slope isn't, isn't enough for us. And so do you get pushback from your membership on, on creating some new, you know, for lack of a better term, like hoops to jump through, which are sound very much founded within the industry, but like, are you seeing that pushback? Well, yeah, new, you know, more courses means more cost to the members. It become it's becoming, uh, it's becoming more expensive to become an avalanche professional in Canada and it's taking longer. And so that goes back to what I was saying earlier. We've, you know, we've rolled out policy and procedure. We're now seeing how that is all sticking and, and, uh, yeah, we're definitely constantly in the process of trying to balance, like, here's what, Here's what our stakeholders, here's what industry is demanding. Here's what we think avalanche workers need to be able to do. Here's what's feasible and sustainable for our, for, you know, feasible for our, our students to be able to afford and, and coordinate around, uh, sustainable for our association to provide. And so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a constantly evolving equation for sure. Yeah, I, I feel we're, we're probably reaching a, a limit right now in terms of in terms of the amount of training that we're requiring the you know the, the number of courses and the cost associated with the challenges in providing all of that training to an ever-increasing pool of people who are interested in doing this work yeah i think we're definitely we're getting we're, we're, we're hitting some walls there uh or close to so maybe it's a call to the industry as well to kind of make it worth our while as avalanche professionals to 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 pay what we're worth you know totally yeah i uh i that's that's always been my take on this is if we can do so much and so many of the people who work in this this domain are so smart and so talented and so passionate and and that's sometimes taken advantage of right because we you know there's no way we couldn't do anything else like we're kind of stuck <laughs> we're, we're, we we would uh, so much of our self-identified identity is tied into this this work and this world that walking away is really hard. And so we're, we're a little bit trapped maybe, 
But if there are clean and easy ways to define what we are capable of, I think that makes it easier to justify what our value is, right? Um, sure. We don't want to make it so exclusive that that you know it's a it's a closed off club. But yeah, I think I think one of the goals of where the CAA has been going is is by defining these competencies. You know, it, you don't have to be a member of the CAA to work in the avalanche industry in Canada, but our goal is that for employers to recognize that people who are members of the CAA are kind of, they're going above and beyond, right? They're, they're, they're maintaining professional development. They're, they're constantly evolving and developing their skill set, And, uh, it's a profession that is, it's important. One of the great things I'll, I'll give this, I'll give credit to Joe Obad on this one, but, uh, there was a recent federal study in Canada on kind of on, you know, geohazard risks to, to critical infrastructure and, and like how, how changing geohazards are going to impact the future of Canadian development. And, and Joe managed to get, you know, avalanches as a risk to, to the economic health of the country front and center, right. Uh, that it features prominently on, on the report that focuses on BC um, and, even though what some of the themes at the latest ISSW were that AI is going to be taking over our jobs pretty soon, you know, for the, for the, the near term, at least like forecasters and, and avalanche tax are going to be a critical part of that. So, so this work is really, the work we do is critical to the economic health of the mountainous West. And, and I think that anything we can do to justify that value is, is a good thing. You mentioned the, uh, the awareness of work safe of uh, avalanche workers or workers in general in avalanche terrain, whether they're working involved in avalanches or, no, or not, and, and work safe's quite aware of the hazard now. Um, so that scrutiny, so to speak, will certainly um, raise attention to how important this whole process is and keeping people safe in the mountains. Totally. One of the benefits of the centralized way we've done th- that things are done in Canada. I won't say it's designed, but that this kind of centralized approach is also has kind of ramifications in, in, in where and how we can work. You know, it's, uh, avalanche, avalanche risk is, is regulated now in a bunch of different industries, either through WorkSafe or through the Mining's Act, Mining Act. Um, there are requirements for certain levels of risk mitigation to be applied to workplaces, um, not just for avalanche workers, but for, you know, uh, highway workers, for w- construction workers building a pipeline or a power transmission line, for for mines and, and infrastructure development in that world. That stuff is all regulated in Canada. And and so it's kind of nice. You know, my, my day job is is on the avalanche engineering side these days. And, and it's pretty easy for us to find work because there are, there's government documents that say, hey, if thou art working in the mountains in winter, thou shall approach an avalanche professional. And and then there's there's um, you know there's standardized processes and and and, and uh, risk management processes that we can apply to those different industries. So it's like it's it's quite clean cut as to what we need to do and how we need to do it. Um, and I'm still understanding the landscape there in the states a bit, but it it, it sounds like to me that there's maybe a bit of a lack of awareness of people who are doing stuff in the mountains in the States as to um, the need to think about avalanche risk and kind of managing 
the safety of their workers, whether they be avalanche workers or, you know, a ski lift operator or other things. Like it doesn't seem to be quite as regulated. It seems like there's a bit of a um, an opportunity for education that could happen on on your side of the border to build awareness outside of our industry of, of what we actually do. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, it seems like it's very reactive here, right? Like when something goes bad, then then there's a lot of reaction. You start getting OSHA involved and stuff. But like there, yeah, I'd, I'd agree. There isn't really the landscape of proactive policy that's, that's kind of being shoved down our throat, um, which has its benefits as well. We can probably get away with a few more things uh, for, the, for the time being. And, and it puts the onus on on the operators of whatever you're talking about, a ski area or, or um, you know, any industry in, into implementing those plans. And so, yeah, I, I think in some ways we kind of lag a little bit behind Canada in, in having that proactive approach. Um, but I think it's, it's pretty cool to see the innovation that comes out of those individualistic plans and then the sharing of that information and an adoption of best practices. Um, it's just a little bit more organic, maybe. Totally. And, and, and Canada came from there too, right? I won't say that we haven't ever had, um, no, we've had our share of avalanche fatalities and, and fatalities are what drive policy change. And I, and I think there's a, there's just like a little bit less of the industry landscape in, at least in the, um, contiguous us for, for mining and whatnot. Um, certainly a bunch of, a bunch of highways programs, but in terms of like that, that industry drive from, from mining exploration, it's just, we don't, we don't really have it as much as you do. No, there's a lot of, there's a resource, BC is a resource-based industry, right? And and like I said, most of the avalanche work is in, is in BC in Canada. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on in remote mountainous areas in all towers, in all sectors from tourism to resource extraction to transport to utilities, right? There's just, there's a lot of potential for, for avalanche, interesting avalanche work up here. Yeah. It, yeah. It was cool at ISSW to see some of the work that's being done and, and just get a glimpse into some of those huge operations. Um, yeah. Pretty mind boggling what, what those folks deal with. And probably then to, you know, to tie it back, like I think it's that, that diversity of application of this skill set is why traditionally avalanche workers in Canada have, tended to be generalists like they tended to have a broad scope of experience because they have had so many different opportunities throughout their career to go from a ski patroller to a highways forecaster to a guide to a you know industrial forecasting for a mine um yeah our career our our potential career paths are just they're they're quite broad and yeah it's a lot of opportunity up here for this sort of work Eric, I wanted to ask you about the InfoX there. Um, it's something that's super important to all of us that work in the avalanche industry here in Canada. And I think it's something that's perhaps looked at somewhat enviously by people that work in other countries. And it's it's come a long way from uh, the old days of faxing in a report to uh, the CAA, which was then uh, aggregated and disseminated after the fact. Um, now it's like a real-time type of thing. So I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, the InfoX and sort of its meaning to... Uh, the Canadian avalanche industry. Yeah, totally. So the InfoX came about, I think it was, I think it was maybe in the, like the late nineties, mid nineties as uh, a result of a coroner's inquiry into a couple of really tragic Haliski fatalities. And, you know, the long short of it is the coroner said, you guys need to do a better job of sharing information. That's, that's the way you can avoid 
know, these, these mass casualty incidents in this, in the heli ski industry. And so it started off as basically, you know, organizations would fax their observations into the CAA and, and they would, someone at the, the CAA desk would aggregate them and fax them all back out. Uh, and then it evolved into a, a mailing list, an emailing list. And, and more recently has become a platform that really, it, the, the goal of the platform is to facilitate the, the daily exchange of, you know, technical snow weather and avalanche and terrain observations between subscribers. So to be a subscriber, you know, the, the subscription holder needs to be a professional member of the CAA. But basically every, every avalanche operation in Canada shares their information daily with every other avalanche observation. Uh, we've recently rolled out a module for Sweden and there's a module for the States too. So it's, it's getting a bit more traction overseas. But it, it becomes a huge, you know, I'll, I'll talk to Canada mainly because it, it's established here and it, it becomes a pretty huge uh, aggregator of data. Like there's, uh, I think the number I've read lately was that on, on any given day, there's about 15,000 data points being submitted of, of different, you know, everything from snow, snow snowpack observations to weather observations to avalanche observations from all the different operating regions uh, in Canada. It's the it's one of the main suppliers for data for Avalanche Canada and their forecast producing the public avalanche bulletins. So they're probably the biggest consumer of the data. But definitely, you know, uh, when you're sitting in your morning guides meeting or your you know your morning forecast meeting at the ski hill and, and you can see where you where you sit, you know, with with in relation to people who are maybe a bit snowier than you and, and they've just had a massive cycle in the last day and a half and you know, you're expecting to kind of hit that that threshold on the same week layer today. That that almost real time exchange of uh, of information really simplifies or, or supports the the hazard analysis process. Um, so it's a pretty powerful tool. It initially started as this kind of this just an exchange of information. Over the last, I think, well, ten years ago. Uh, it was redeveloped to incorporate a bunch of the work that came out of Pascal Hagley's research program at Simon Fraser University, built around what, what we call, I don't know if you guys use it in the States, but the conceptual model of avalanche hazard, which is this idea of you know uh, placing, uh, placing your different avalanche problems in a matrix of size and consequence. And, and so there's a whole uh, process, kind of information uh, analysis process built around that that is built into InfoX to guide the forecast. And so you you know you build these these forecasting workflows or or in the morning or now casting workflows to kind of capture your end of day observations where you start with your weather, your recent snow observations, your description of the snowpack. You can track weak layers in the snow, um, you know persistent weak problems. You can build your hazard uh, assessment, and then it's got modules for managing run lists for heli ski operations so you can go through each of your runs and you know open or close them for the day uh, there's modules for managing and tracking your explosive avalanche control and seeing and then you know recording it and seeing where you've done control in the past and and uh you know w- where places may have missed all that information is is shared with the community um you know there's some pretty there's there's a great culture of confidentiality like people aren't sharing their logins with their buddies it's a, clo- a pretty closely guarded secret. Everyone knows that, you know, it only works because the information is confidential within the group. And then it's all the, the, the most kind of recent, you know, most recent updates or not most recent updates, but 
it's all spatial data too. So you can access it through, you know, through traditional kind of tables, but you can also see how different observations, whether they be, you know, storm snow amounts or avalanches on a recent week layer are distributed in a map. Um, so it's a really powerful tool for record keeping analysis, but also uh, building your, your bigger, you know, your, your larger scale operational context. It's a pretty powerful tool. I'm, and I'm, man, it would be hard to be an avalanche forecaster these days without it, to be honest. I don't know how I'd do it. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And, you know, building a platform of that uh, magnitude is not cheap. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like the, the long-term sustainability of, and the funding of InfoX. So one of the things that came out of, you know, the way that the CA has built InfoX is we, we started it off as just a, a really simple information exchange. And now all of a sudden, the, this membership association is essentially providing a software as a service. And, and more even than a software as a service, I would say it's actually a critical utility within Canada. You know, it, it's the backbone of the Canadian avalanche industry. Like its, its importance can't be understated to how we do our work. Recently, uh, we've been um, in a development cycle, um, you know, as we learned to be a software as a service provider, the business model for the software was always kind of secondary to the service. Like we wanted to provide a service to our members. And so, you know, InfoX was developed and then kind of, I wouldn't say it was left on the shelf, but it was, it was prodded occasionally and, and we, we managed it and maintained it to the best of our, our capacity um, within the organization, which at the time was a project manager and two developers. We, we quickly realized that, you know, that's not a, a sustainable way to manage software that you're a provider of. Uh, and at one point, you know, we were pretty close to there being like one patch that was keeping InfoX alive. And if Google depreciated this, this one piece of, of software, like InfoX was going to come crashing down. We never caught quite there, but it was, it was close for a while. And so as a response, we were able to secure some um, federal government funding through what's called SARNIF, Search and Rescue New Initiatives Fund. They're a federal agency that funds lots of safety uh, you know, projects. And so on the back of this SARNIF funding, uh, we embarked in a multi-year project to rebuild InfoX in a much more sustainable way. We scaled up our development team. You know, there's, uh, there's now a project manager, two developers full-time in-house at the CAA, and then a, a really strong contracted development crew who's, who's working on this, you know, constantly developing uh, new features and new functionality. That funding ends this year. And so I, I, I suspect that kind of the development cycle may slow a little bit. Um, we might not get as many new fun tools as we have been every year, uh, but but we're going to look into, yeah, we're, we're definitely trying to now build and refine um, the business model to ensure that the system is sustainable so that we can keep on top, you know, on top of an ever-changing technological landscape you know, these things, you can't just put them in a corner and let them, they're not like a cactus. They're a lotus. They need to be watered and tended and loved. And so, yeah, I think we're in a process of, of reevaluating the business model and figuring out how, how to ensure that we keep on top or in front of the development curve. We don't want to do that by increasing subscription fees to users. There's a balance of like increasing the user base with the revenues they, they build in and bring in. Um, there may have to be some, you know, the fact that it is a utility for us is a pretty compelling argument that there should maybe be some kind of long-term government funding for this this platform. 
yeah, that's definitely one of the things the board is is kind of actively like, how do we how do we ensure that this product that is so critical is sustainable in the long term? Yeah, I mean, you could say without exaggeration that it keeps the highways open and and these mines and pipelines running. One hundred percent does absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a it is a utility. We've we've stopped talking about it as a service and and we've started talking about it as a utility because it it is it's it's critical infrastructure at this point. For so much that avalanche professionals do, and as, as I said earlier, like avalanche professionals are, you know, keeping the roads open. They're keeping business moving through, well, through the Mountain West, but definitely through British Columbia, Alberta, and the Yukon. Uh, and so, having having the tools that they need to keep operating at their like their high level of efficiency is it's pretty important. I ju- I would just jump in and say I think it's great that it's been made available to us in the U.S. as well and. And, you know, I, I remember hearing about when that came about, when it was going to happen. And I just had visions of like opening this box and this big, like gold glowing light was going to hit my face and, and it was just going to change the landscape. And, and it hasn't really been adopted as widely as, as what I had envisioned. And I think there are a few reasons for that. Like it's a bit cost prohibitive for smaller operations. And then also like we've ever, everybody within their geographic region has, has establish some sort of information sharing and it's pretty hard to just throw that out and, and adopt something new. But, um, I know that the AMGA has, has kind of taken a hold of it and been utilizing that for a number of years now. And then also it seems like the, the hot zone right now with InfoX is like the Pacific Northwest. Um, a lot of organizations in, in Washington use that, but, um, if people are listening to this, just, just know that this is available and, in, in a, uh, pretty amazing um structure of of information sharing that that you can utilize at your operation well maybe to just to, to tag on to that like one of the latest developments that we've we've we're getting and and i'm really excited about is is an open api for this platform so um you know just and and that's response to yeah, even within Canada, different different organizations might be using different front or back ends to this database, um, but they've recognized the value in sharing the information. So um, by having this kind of this this front door that you can just package your data in and it'll go through into the system and then be shared with the larger community, I think is going to uh, hopefully address some of that fragmentation of like the information sharing space in the states. It's it's a it probably is probably coming back a bit too late because it well not too late it's it's coming about late because it is such a kind of valuable piece of getting more organizations adopting the platform or at least engaging in the platform so uh you know infox doesn't mean it needs to replace whatever you're using whether it's smart mountain or or you know however you're storing your data or however you're sharing your data i think hopefully now that we have this api uh in the in the works and, and soon to be released yeah that's going to open up the the possibilities, I think, a lot. Well, that was an interesting conversation with Eric Sharp and Caleb Merrill. Thank you guys for joining me, and thank you all for listening. I appreciated hearing from Caleb the similarities and differences between the A3 and the CAA. We're all here for the same goal, and we share a lot of weather systems, mountain ranges, and histories. I also learned a lot from Eric about the history and the story behind the Canadian Avalanche Association. Stay tuned for part two, where Eric recounts stories of cold lab experiments at Rogers Pass, setting up a heli-skiing company in the Yukon, and valuable lessons learned from a significant event early in his career. 
This podcast is all about sharing stories, knowledge, and news. So if you have suggestions or questions for future episodes, please contact us. You can do that on our website at www.theavalanchehour.com, where you can also find all our past episodes. You can also reach out at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, tell a friend and please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts really help to spread the show. If you want to help support the show, there's a new donate button on theavalanchehour.com. Thank you to everyone who's supported the show so far. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Thanks, Mike. Head over to MikeT.com and check out some of Mike's work. I'm really digging the new logo for the podcast. Music for this episode was written and performed by my good buddy Gravy. Thanks, Gravy, for the tunes. You can hear more of Gravy's tunes at Gravy.tunes on Instagram and find his album on Bandcamp. Gravy's also an up-and-coming snowboard guide and an absolute shredder, so you can find his soulful pow turns on his Instagram feed too, often accompanied by his great music. This episode was produced by Wes Gregg. Thanks, Wes. Check out Wes's new business at TriggerBackCountryAdventures.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, keep having fun out there. <laughs>